This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Designed specifically for venture-backed startups, Brex is the perfect corporate card for fast-growing companies. Head to brex.com and sign up with the promo TFR to get waived card fees for life. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back for episode 38 of The Full Ratchet. Today, we welcome Michael Goldberg to talk about cross-border investing. We will address questions that touch on legal, financial, corruption, transparency, and even startup relocation and immigration issues. Let's get right to it. Here's the episode on cross-border investing. Today, Michael Goldberg joins us on the program. He is a professor at Case Western Reserve's Weatherhead School of Management and has developed a free MOOC called Beyond Silicon Valley, Growing Entrepreneurship in Transitioning Economies, which in less than a year has been taken by over 42,000 students. Michael also runs a venture fund called the Bridge Investment Fund. Michael, thanks so much for joining us today and happy to have you here on the program. It's great to be here. Thanks, Nick. Before we get into today's topic, which is capital across markets and cross-border investing, can you walk us through your background and how you became involved in venture investing? I have a little bit of a non-traditional path to become a venture capital investor, which in some ways, I guess many VC investors have a non-traditional path. (laughs) Did my undergrad at Princeton, studied public policy, spent three years living in South Africa, running voter education programs in advance of South Africa's first democratic elections in 1994 when Nelson Mandela was elected. Then came back to the U.S., did joint MBA and Master's of International Affairs at Wharton and Johns Hopkins. And then kind of cut my teeth in the private sector world for the first time at this small internet company and internet 1.0 called AOL. For any listeners that actually used dial-up back in the day, my current students have never heard of AOL. (laughs) I've only get their internet access on their phone or via broadband. So I worked for four years doing international business development for AOL, mostly focused on Asia. We did a joint venture with Lenovo to enter the China market. And so had some experience doing not direct investment work per se at AOL, but a lot of joint venture and partnering work, and then ended up setting up a venture capital fund back in my home city of Cleveland, Ohio, with a partner based in Israel, focused on investing in early stage medical device technologies coming out of Israel, sort of pre-US commercialization, teaching, as you mentioned, at Case Western Reserve University for the last six years, started off with a position focused on the entrepreneurial finance class, sort of access to capital, and now have a full-time visiting assistant professor position and have continued to do a lot of work all over the world, which I know we'll touch on today. Well, great. Yeah, you mentioned Israel there, and I know you've had unique experience working with companies in the Middle East and Asian countries to either help support entrepreneurship or raising capital. Can you first touch on the specific countries that you've had interaction with in the past, whether it be on the investment side or uh, facilitating fundraising? On the direct investment side, it's been pretty focused on Israel. So as I mentioned, my business partner for my venture fund is based in Tel Aviv. And we went out to raise a small fund. It's a $10 million fund with the hypothesis that there was excellent 
opportunities, particularly in the medical space in Israel, that we thought we could marry with an advisory board and some of the connections we had at the Cleveland Clinic and healthcare institutions in Cleveland. More broadly speaking, I've been really fortunate to work in a number of countries around the world. In 2012, I was a Fulbright Scholar in Vietnam, so based in Hanoi, and worked with a number of entrepreneurs there. I was a mentor with the Founder Institute and did some lecturing, not just in Vietnam, but also Laos, Cambodia, and Myanmar. I've taught entrepreneurship at Bill Kent University in Turkey and done some work as an advisor for a seed accelerator in Ankara. I've worked in done advising for the U.S. State Department in a number of countries in Europe, including Greece, Spain, Macedonia, done work in Tunisia, and as I mentioned at AOL, did a lot of work in China and continue to do some advisory work for a venture capital fund based in China. So I've been fortunate that I've really been able to touch a lot of international markets um, with my work. Yeah, Israel in particular, I had an opportunity probably about a year ago, a partnership with a venture fund out there, and I was pretty impressed by the access to capital from a grant standpoint and from various government subsidies for very early stage core science startups to really get them off the ground and get some traction before they go out for professional seed capital. Have you found that to be the case? No, absolutely. And in my MOOC, which you alluded to, we talk a lot about the role of government and donors. I mean, I come from a city in Cleveland without access to the type of private capital that's available in Silicon Valley. You look to other sources of support, and that namely is government or donors. I mean, in Israel, and this has been well documented in a number of books, and Startup Nation is sort of the most famous, particularly when Israel had its influx of really talented, skilled highly trained refugees from Russia in the early 1990s, they weren't frankly quite sure what to do with them. And they created a number of initiatives, some under the chief scientist program, which, as you alluded to, provide a a healthy, I was going to say match, but it's even more than a match. I mean, in certain areas, you can leverage four to one, five to one government dollars to private money. They also set up a state-backed venture capital fund that really helps start the venture capital industry in Israel. I mean, fast forwarding from kind of the early 90s to today, it's a pretty vibrant ecosystem there. And I think it's interesting. And the Israelis, because they're so well networked in other parts of the world outside of Israel, and frankly, their markets for their technologies and the products, I mean, the country only has 6 million people are in places outside of Israel. They've done a really excellent job kind of leveraging government support to develop homegrown access to capital and then attracting capital from the outside. Yeah, I've noticed a number of players in the ecosystem out there sort of springing up and getting a lot of traction. Maybe we can jump into some of that later with our crowd and some other topics. But first on the topic today, I wanted to jump into some of the challenges that we see when it comes to cross-border investing. Aside from the obvious reasons like language and distance, what are some of the most significant challenges that you've seen when it comes to cross-border investing? That's a great question, Nick. I'd say confidence at a very high level, and that confidence could be in the legal system. So in Europe, I mean, many investors sort of sitting in the United States will look overseas, and if they look at the structure and have confidence that the corporate entity, whether there's a kind of protections that they would expect here, I think, frankly, in general, people, this is true for a number of reasons, have more faith and confidence when they're investing close to home. Some of that obviously has to do with sort of access to local entrepreneurs, but just on the legal system, making sure that there's confidence that the 
underlying structure of the investment so that if things go the wrong way, and unfortunately in the startup world, they often do more often than not, at least there's kind of, I mean, people understand, I think early stage investors, angel investors, people who listen to the show understand that the nature of early stage investing is high risk, but you're adding in an additional element of risk by putting a foreign entity in the mix. Now to address that, what you see, and you've seen this for years, and I've seen it in Israeli companies and I've seen it in European companies, that decision for early stage companies to either set up their corporation locally or with relative ease without actually being located in the US, you can set up a US Delaware C Corp or LLC. So a number of companies that are looking to target foreign capital will go ahead and incorporate in the United States, even if they're sort of physically not here as a way to provide that confidence to investors. I think the second piece on the confidence piece, and this is particularly true in markets where I've worked like Vietnam, the lack of transparency, and some of this has to do with legal, and some of this is just sort of on the corruption and cronyism side. As I worked in Vietnam, it's a very hard place to do business. And there were challenges in there and getting enough confidence that this is a good place to do business. Yeah. So I know you've known John Houston for some time. If John, maybe with his group or on his own, came across an attractive company in a different region, he's got a penchant for USBS, C-Corp companies. I know you can't speak for John, but do you think somebody like John would look to structure that C-Corp maybe in Delaware or stateside somewhere before making a placement? No, absolutely. I mean, and I think John, if any of my deals I've talked to John about, and John, for many of your listeners may know, is a leader in the angel capital community nationally and here in Ohio. Yep. For many angel funds and many venture capital funds, when they're going out to their investor base, many of them will sort of state right away, we will not do deals outside the US. So for certain angel funds and certain venture capital funds, it's a complete non-starter unless they structure that way. For some companies, this means doing a reverse merger into some sort of a US company. So there's a company in Cleveland called Symbionics, which started off and it's not in our portfolio unfortunately, because they were bought last year by 3D Systems. But when they took in some US capital from venture capital fund based here, they had to do what's called a reverse merger to set up structure where the parent became a US company and the subsidiary was based overseas. But absolutely, many investors won't. That conversation is over for more structured funds, angel funds or venture capital funds, if they're not a US corporation. Maybe we can dive into some of the financial things, maybe some legal issues and some strategic issues here. But let's jump into the financial stuff first on that point. And I guess my first curiosity is, is a startup going to have to pay twice? So if they're located in a different country and they formalize here in the States, are they going to have to pay taxes to maybe a state entity, a federal entity, and then also in their home country? And then are there any other financial and or audit issues that you've come across from cross-border investing? The cop-out answer is it depends, and it does depend <laughs> on, on a country-by-country basis. Some countries are focused on preventing double taxation, so they'll have there are tax agreements between the United States and a number of countries around the world to address that very issue. That being said, oftentimes these things are a bit complicated, and there are plenty of service providers out there that raise their hands and for a fee, their legal tax 
accounting are sort of helping startups with this. For thinly capitalized startup companies, these costs can be significant. I mean, I think things have gotten better. I actually had a, I had Jason Mendelson from the Foundry Group talk to my entrepreneurial finance class, and we were talking about how things had changed even over the sort of the 10 years that these guys, since Brad Feld and Jason had their blog, and then they put out their venture deals book, the clarity around term sheets. And Jason was saying that when they published venture deals book, it was like the legal community didn't like it so much because they were making things sort of more easy and more transparency (laughs) out there, which was great on many levels. This sort of tax audit side of things, it's still complicated and it depends on a deal by deal basis. It's certainly something that early stage companies sort of have to be aware of. And it's very much a country by country basis. Some countries are better at this than others. So if we were to pick a country that you've had experience with in the past, and you're going to do an investment at a seed stage, are you engaging a audit partner at that stage and structuring the term sheet such that there's limited opportunity for financial engineering or potentially even corruption? This is the key in who your syndicate partners are. For angels or venture funds that are looking to dive into international markets, being a lead investor, an Israeli, a Vietnamese, a Moroccan startup company sitting in Cleveland, Ohio, or Chicago, or San Francisco is a challenge. It's a challenge on sort of many different levels. And I think that the key is finding good local partners that can help guide that. Those local partners will help bring in the right advisors, tax, audit, and others. It's very challenging and somewhat sort of unrealistic to think that even the most sophisticated early stage investors sort of sitting in the U.S. can really sort of navigate that even with good paid advisors. So I think having the right partners in the deal as part of your syndicate can help someone really guide that well. So will you look for a partner that's in region as a co-investor then? Oh, absolutely. Frankly, that has been the strategy of our venture capital fund. We tend on our Israeli side, we tend to invest sort of pre-US commercialization, but our syndicate partners, I certainly early off have tended to be uh, local Israeli investors that can help us navigate the landscape. Now, my partner is based in Israel, so we have some additional help in that way, but I think it's critical. And then For some of these other things, I mean, I've traveled a lot recently, as I mentioned, and as I see some of the angel activity that's happening where, and some of this is really done kind of in, let's call it the expatriate community. They're sort of looking to connect back. Maybe it's a Greek American that has been successful, Czech American, or, uh, and I think the motivations, and I know you've talked about it with other folks that have been on the show in terms of why are angels motivated? It's primarily return on investment, but there may be other factors that are at play. And for some expatriates looking to give back to their community, they're interested in seeing the local startup scene in their home community grow. It's critical for those folks to connect back. And I think it happens naturally because many of the expatriates are connected with people they grew up with or other angels in their community to connect back with folks that can help navigate the process. It's just too hard to do kind of cross-border It's amazing the number of angels that are all over the place, places I never would have expected. I think you mentioned you were just in Europe and you did a tour of a number of countries. I think you mentioned Crete, but I just got an email from a group of angels in Crete. I couldn't believe that somebody from Crete was reaching out. It's it's unbelievable. Yeah. The more shocking thing was I did a TED talk in Crete three weeks ago, actually on my online class and looking at entrepreneurial ecosystems. As you alluded to, I have this massive open online course on Coursera. We have had 45,000 students now from 190 countries. And 
this question of how to enable more angel investors to get active in communities because of technology. It's such a natural connection as people look to Christians that have been successful sort of outside and want to give something back. And I'm just super impressed by the ability and the hustle of local entrepreneurs to kind of track down expats. It's still hard to pull off, but smart entrepreneurs are using those networking skills and whether those networks are built using LinkedIn or other sort of, let's call it more traditional ways. And then the kind of old fashioned Who did their dads know and who did their grandparents know? And so it's really happening. It's still like any early stage investor looking to close capital. It's still a challenging process, even if you're doing it with somebody sort of sitting on your street. But I've been really impressed by what I've seen with entrepreneurs looking to broaden their networks outside of their home community and home country to attract capital. Instead of just taking a broad international approach to investing, it sounds like you need to establish some partnerships with groups that are in specific regions, and you can learn more about those regions and the nuances as opposed to doing a shotgun approach on Asia, for instance. I think so. I know AngelList has been a topic that you covered on your show. When Gil, uh, who's the leading AngelList syndicate, he did an interesting interview. I heard him with Jason Kalkanis talking about an investment that he had made in a company from Gdansk, Poland. Like, how does a company from Gdansk, Poland (laughs) end up being funded by? And I think, like, he led the angel round, and then Andreessen Horowitz and others came into the deal. Now, that company, the guys relocated to Silicon Valley. As amazing as the story is, and it is a great story, those guys were sort of sitting in Silicon Valley, going down Sand Hill Road, making the connections. And they still have a technical team based in Poland. But what if the entire team was in Poland? Would that deal have happened? I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe the technology was sort of strong enough that it would have happened anyway. But that's the challenge for entrepreneurs. You're probably going to still have to get on a plane. And hey, there's resources and visa issues and all these things. But it's hard to close big rounds in the total virtual world just via Skype. And at some point, people want to sort of or attract these people sort of back home at some point. It's hard to see this stuff getting done completely via Skype and Google Hangouts and via email. Yeah, there's a bit of a, seems like a talent relocation epidemic of sorts that permeates everything. Some of the great companies that get funded from the Bay Area, they want them to relocate to the Bay Area, or at least a significant portion of their operation. We have this issue in Chicago, and we also have this problem within the state. Some of my friends that are involved in state politics, big issue that they've seen is All the talent from really small rural communities relocates to places like Chicago. You get this weird sort of talent suck to uh, concentrated regions. And while I appreciate all the talent and the access and the folks I get to interact with in Chicago, it is a strange issue. But sorry to get on this tangent here. Let's jump back into some of these challenges. Michael, can you touch on some of the legal challenges that you've either encountered or you would recommend for angels and groups to be aware of? in cross-border investing? I mean, I think some of it, as I alluded to before, is just sort of this corporate structure and location issues and kind of what are the protections that accompany the investment in your location. And unfortunately, and, and I've seen it even in some of my own companies where there are normal things that happen within a company, you know, a founder leaves or is fired or there's some compensation issue that sort of happens and all of a sudden you find yourself battling this out and there's a lawsuit that is filed in a locale. I mean, some of that questions about 
if your investors are taking board seats on companies, and that may or may not be true, I mean, depending on the size of the angel investment, perhaps they would take a board seat. And then is there a DNO policy that the company has and that the board members have so that if somebody comes after them in the market where they're working, these things are complicated enough in the US, but then you kind of throw on what does it mean to be the subject of a lawsuit in some other country? So, I mean, hey, these are the sort of unforeseen things that we all hope don't happen, but it's making sure that you're in there with the right partners. And I think just on that specific issue of what sort of exposure do you have? Many angel investors that want to be hands-on are like, yeah, I absolutely want a board seat and I want all these things. I mean, you might want to think about, depending on the location where you are, if there's any potential exposure that comes with having a board seat of a foreign corporation. So again, I think it's partnering with the right syndicate in country, making sure that you're well represented by your server providers in those countries to help you navigate what will likely be new territory for you. Got it. I know a challenge I had in my last formal role, I was developing a breakthrough product. We had a big challenge with rolling out in other regions on the patent and the IP side, not only the costs of just filing, but then the enforcement mechanisms are all different and it was just a nightmare. And this can be a huge cost to early stage companies that are not well capitalized. And the number of countries in which you could potentially sort of file protection in, I mean, hey, there's any number of legal service providers that would love to do that work for you for a lot of cash that companies may not have. Every situation is going to be different. IP challenges, particularly in some Asian markets, are really vexing. And in reality, many early stage companies, IP is such a core piece to what they're doing that putting the resources behind protecting it does make sense for the investors in the company over time. Some companies that we all may be investing in, it's more of an execution play anyway. And the IP protection isn't going to make a ton of sense in terms of sort of resource allocation. And certainly figuring out the maze of international IP protection as well. Yep. Very fair point. How about on the corruption side? Have you ever had direct firsthand exposure to uh, corruption in another region for an investment that you were a part of? Not directly for an investment that I was a part of, but as I alluded to, I spent six months in Vietnam in 2012, and it's a really entrepreneurial exciting market. And as I talked to investors and people that were sort of kicking the tires on opportunities there, the sort of insecurity that comes with the lack of transparency and there's been a number of highly reported corruption cases that have happened there in China as well. And I think maybe in a place like China, there's actually a little bit more scrutiny right now around corruption and it's giving investors a little bit more confidence. And I think ultimately governments like Vietnam, I mean, I just got back from this trip to Greece. In Greece, it maybe is less about corruption and more about administrative bureaucracy and inefficiency, just making it super painful for entrepreneurs to get a company up and running and they're just getting nickeled and dimed. It's actually not corruption. It's just like an incredibly inefficient system. That being said, just on there is corruption in a lot of these places. And I think that dissuades investors for good reasons. And ultimately, countries that are in these kind of gray areas need to decide if they want to clean this up. Many Greeks that I know, and the situation, the economic situation there is so dire that entrepreneurship is super critical for new job creation and the hope of the country. And I've talked to 
Greek angel investors are still sort of sitting on the sideline and saying, I don't have the confidence to go back in there at this point until more of the stuff gets cleaned up. And how fast is that going to happen? When I left Greece a couple of weeks ago, there's a lot of hope. I met a lot of great entrepreneurs, but I don't know if this is going to happen fast enough to kind of give the capital markets the confidence to get back in here and back entrepreneurs. Bit of a challenge. If they can't keep the entrepreneurs or can't get the capital in, then writing that ship from an economic standpoint is going to be very difficult. But Michael, you've touched on a number of challenges and factors to consider. Any other advice or strategic considerations for stateside angels and or groups that are exploring more of an international investment strategy? You alluded to our crowd. I mean, what John Medved is doing, and to some degree, this is what I was doing in Israel. I was tapping into investor bases, primarily in the Jewish community that had connections into Israel that had a desire and kind of an interest in supporting technology out of Israel and wanted exposure to it. And I think our crowd seems like a great vehicle to do that. They're smartly syndicating with other angel groups and venture capital investors. Hey, maybe the Israelis in our crowd are a little bit further ahead of what I'm seeing in other places. We are truly a melting pot in the U.S. We've got people from sort of every ethnicity and people have some deep roots. And last year I was in Budapest in Hungary and I saw I went to visit Prezi, which is based there. I went to a really cool accelerator called iCatapult and saw a bunch of young entrepreneurs. Cleveland and Chicago also has a huge Hungarian community. I mean, we've got some historic links to a place like Budapest. And how do you connect the dots back? And I mean, I talked to entrepreneurs in Budapest and I was like, you guys should be coming to Cleveland and Chicago (laughs) and talking to people of Hungarian descent about what's going on there. Because frankly, many of the immigrants who came to Cleveland and Chicago from Hungary, they did it in the 60s or the 50s. They have great memories of the place. They don't know that Prezi is there. There's all these exciting sort of startup companies. So some of the onus I put back on the entrepreneurs, how do they get the hustle to show up in places like Cleveland and Chicago to get in front of folks? And then on the other side, frankly, probably for many angels that listen to your podcast that are involved in angel investing, they're probably doing a lot of international travel. Instead of just being on an international cruise and seeing the sites and seeing the Coliseum, I don't know what's happening in the startup scene in Rome, but Trust me, there's some accelerator in Rome. I'm sure they'd love to meet Italians from Chicago or Cleveland or L.A. or wherever. And that kind of entrepreneur tourism, it's really energizing. At a minimum, just sort of hearing what people are doing. And maybe it leads to an angel deal. So I'd really encourage people to, wherever you're going in the world, type in Rome, Sao Paulo, Harare, Seed Accelerator, and you'll find somebody. I mean, it's not that hard to, to find where these people are hanging out. I hear you. A buddy of mine, he's a 20-something angel investor and just took a backpacking trip to Israel, Palestine, Turkey, and he actually stopped in at Accelerators and a venture fund in different places when he was out there. So I was inspired to maybe challenge myself to do some more of that. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world, and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. The Brex Corporate Card for Startups offers 10 to 20 times higher limits than traditional corporate cards, automated expense tools, and huge rewards like four times points back on travel, three times back on restaurants, and two times back on recurring SaaS spend, and all with no personal guarantee. Sign up at brex.com and get waived card fees for life with the code TFR. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Assure. For over three years, Newstack has been raising capital on a deal-by-deal basis, allowing individual investors to select each startup investment. 
Assure is the company behind the scenes that powers this process. When we have 10, 20, or 30 angels investing in a startup, we can't put all those folks directly on the startup's cap table. So those investors are rolled into a special purpose vehicle that occupies just one line item on the cap table. And Assure handles all ongoing fees, finances, and K-1s for us. We pay a one-time upfront fee and avoid all the required yearly admin filings and bills. If you run an angel group or you would like your LPs to invest in deal-by-deal sidecars, go to assure.co slash TFR for 20% off your first SPV. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Michael, wanted to get your input. I'm not sure if you've had any exposure to the the whole let PJ stay story and that movement that's been buzzing around social media, but uh, founder of Echo Labs, of course, the health tracking company, and PJ is from Belgium, I guess going to be deported pretty soon because he and his team's visas are expiring. So there's a big movement around this. People are signing petitions. I saw Brad Feld was tweeting about it the other day. Do you have a position on PJ's case and how we can think about fostering innovation and bringing people from other countries when we have laws and we have immigration policy to navigate? Sure. I am a little bit familiar with the case and saw the video that his supporters put together to try to make a case to keep him. I mean, hey, they're singing to the choir with me. I mean, I teach lots of international talented students. And I think Tom Friedman actually in one of his columns have said when we hand out our PhD degrees, I would extend it to MBAs to our international students. We should give them the piece of paper and a green card. Hey, we have a traditional kind of reunification immigration policy. The fact that we're not focused on keeping our best and brightest here and that countries like Canada or other places are welcoming these guys with open arms, we're really idiotic about it. We should be embracing folks like PJ and others, keeping them here. And I think some of the number of efforts, whether it's start a visa and obviously increasing H-1Bs, by allowing people who are bringing such economic value and great ideas to stay here, obviously, A, we're increasing our employment base and new companies. B, I think we're just sort of deepening the relations that we have with their home countries. A friend of mine here in Cleveland wrote a book called Immigrant Inc., and it detailed the number of NASDAQ companies that were started by foreign entrepreneurs. And it's astounding, and it's not surprising. The work ethic, the talent... And unfortunately, as you know well, immigration is such sort of a hot button issue and everybody's sort of screaming at each other and no one's really listening. But I couldn't feel more strongly that we need to do more to keep our foreign talent here because they can really ultimately create awesome companies and new jobs for everyone. So, Michael, what are you currently most focused on? This MOOC, as my kids refer to, it's like the MOOC that ate their dad. I'm doing a lot of travel. I'm actually heading off to Namibia. I keep using these Southern Africa analogies because I'm planning my trip right now. I just got a second Fulbright to do um, some work around my MOOC in Namibia, leading a social entrepreneurship boot camp for the State Department in Namibia, Botswana, and or Namibia, Zambia, and Zimbabwe. I'm doing some work for the State Department in Botswana. I'm so intrigued and energized by kind of what is happening more on the ecosystem side. And on the funding side, our fund, you know, we're 
We'd love to raise more money at some point. Like a lot of venture capital funds out there, we've got to get the realizations to raise more capital, which I think is the way that it should be. So I'm doing more teaching and connecting and mentoring than I am deploying capital in companies right now. But I think eventually get back into the capital deployment world. But it's been fun. I love the international connection piece. And so that's where a lot of my focus is right now. If we could cover any topic in venture investing, what do you think we should address and who would you like to hear speak about it? Well, I think, yeah, Nick, you need to get on a plane and meet me in Windhoek in a couple of <laughs> weeks. Yeah. And I obviously deep into this, but I think more international perspectives. I don't know to what degree you're able to sort of track your listening audience. I'm sure it's primarily domestic given the nature of the folks you cover. But I think the topics that you're covering here are of great international interest and things are different. I mean, I appreciate what you're doing and talking to people in places like Cleveland and obviously Chicago's ecosystem is different than Silicon Valley. And I think as you continue to broaden your network outside of sort of the major startup areas, those emerging stories are really interesting and can be really instructive to people. So get your passport ready, hit the road. (laughs) I'm just looking at the geographic breakdown right now, as you mentioned that. It's definitely overwhelmingly U.S., mostly California and New York, but Israel is 10th on the list. Which, there you uh, go. I didn't know. <laughs> okay. I mean, even a place like Iran, like I have Ron's big in the news this week, the U.S. agreement. The entrepreneurship in the community in Iran is so exciting. I've never been there. I did had a number of students take the class from Tehran. I spoke via Skype to an institute focused on entrepreneurial ecosystem development in Tehran. My MOOC's the only MOOC on Coursera that's translated into Farsi. I just love like a Jewish guy sitting in Cleveland, Ohio, Skyping in to talk to Iranian policymakers about entrepreneurial ecosystem development. What an amazing opportunity to exchange ideas. It's a whole new world out there. Who knows who's going to show up to be listening to Full Ratchet? (laughs) Maybe some oil money. We'll see. (laughs) There you go. So, Michael, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you? Any of the ways. My email address is michael.goldberg at case.edu. That's my Twitter is mgcleave, C-L-E-V-E. Either of those ways is probably the best. I'd love to hear from people. Also, a lot of people from around the world, so you can find me on LinkedIn as well. I'd love to connect with you. Thanks so much for carving out the time and being willing to do this and sharing all your thoughts on it. I really enjoyed it. It was great talking to you. See you in Namibia. Big thanks to Michael for sharing his thoughts. Let's recap some of the key takeaways. Number one is called looking for leverage. Early on in the show, Michael talked about the support that Israel's government provides to startups and early stage technologies. In this particular case, it's not just a match. There are situations where the government will contribute 4x or 5x of the capital infused from private investors. This has been a significant catalyst for the ecosystem of the country and over many years has influenced many citizens to think about innovation from a young age. While government grants should not be required to create and nurture an ecosystem, it certainly provides enormous opportunity for entrepreneurs and tremendous leverage for early investors. If one is exploring a cross-border investment strategy, Government contribution of risk capital should be considered. Key takeaway number two is called challenges to cross-border investing. The first item that Michael cited was confidence in the legal system. Are there similar protections when it comes to the corporate entity 
as there are here in the States. A foreign entity adds an additional element of risk to an already risky class of investing. Many cross-border investors will require that a foreign startup file their C-Corp here in the States, ideally in Delaware. Michael went on to discuss corruption, transparency, administrative bureaucracy, and investor exposure. On that last point, he mentioned that there may be exposure that comes with having a board seat of a foreign corporation. As an investor with a board seat, one can be held legally accountable if there's some impropriety, whether they are liable or not. And finally, the third key takeaway is called local syndicate partners. Michael stressed the importance of finding in-region syndicate partners that you can trust. While one can attempt to learn and navigate the legal, audit, and general business climate from thousands of miles away, it's a major challenge with a lot of unknowns. When Michael identifies a region that is an attractive ecosystem, he will find an investor in that region that understands the local climate before making an investment. While this does not guarantee that issues won't arise, I'd imagine a lot of the common pitfalls can be identified early and avoided by in-region experts. All right, let's wrap up with our tip of the week. And this week's tip is called mapping your ecosystem. All this talk today about gaining knowledge and comfort in international ecosystems got me thinking about my own ecosystem. Surprisingly, I find it rare that peers are fully integrated into the startup environment where they live. And before one decides to invest across borders, it is probably a good idea to understand the landscape in their own region. Recently, I was on the phone with a young venture capitalist in Boston. She asked me how I first figured out how to meet and connect with both other investors and with startups looking for capital. While I wasn't very intentional in my approach, I did start piecing together a visual map of the Chicago startup ecosystem and its major players. This process began with identification of the major categories within the ecosystem. My category list included venture capital firms, angel groups, capital connectors. These are similar to angel groups, but they merely link investors with startups as opposed to organizing and making investments themselves. Seed A and B funded startups, other large tech companies with great talent, dev shops, dev training companies, startup hubs and co-working spaces, incubators, accelerators, universities and tech schools, startup or innovation media players and newsletters, meetup groups, tech and startup event calendars, large startup, tech, or innovation events and hackathons, legal players in venture, and finally, government and tax. To complete the map, I took each category and attempted to list out all the major players in the region. So for the angel groups category, I identified Hyde Park, Cornerstone, West Loop, Heartland, Irish, etc., for the accelerators, I found Techstars, Impact Engine, Matter, TechWalk, HealthBox, LightBank Start, etc. Within a day, I had a long list of industry players to connect with and network. From there, it was a matter of finding individuals to meet with or attending valuable events that included a critical mass of these players. 
And I still have not made my way through the entire list, which continues to grow, so it's still providing value to me after two years of doing this. So while the Full Ratchet program has been an excellent way for me to connect with investors and with startups, my number one source of syndication and deal flow is still the Chicago ecosystem. And if one is really looking to get involved, before launching a cross-border investment strategy, why not map the home ecosystem and create a foundation of support and partners in your own backyard? That's all for today. If you'd like to reference anything we discussed on the program, I will post all show notes at fullratchet.net. Until next time, remember to over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. See you next week.